Well, this morning, uh, you, you have me twice, and I got to tell you, I'm always amazed that on a beautiful morning like this, you came. You came to hear this, and you wanted to hear what this, this next turning point would be. And I was thinking, I just want to, uh, this talk today is so relevant to me because the turning point, I was 18 years old, but I would say it's, it's one of the two turning points, really three, that I'm really living most intensely with now. And the turning point is the gift that Jesus offers us, which would be the gift of following. That's the one we're talking about today, uh, turning point number four. And I think all of us have in a, mo- a moment in our life where, and when I'm talking about following, I'm not talking about believing salvation. I'm really talking about, is Jesus going to be Lord of my, you know, was Jesus really going to be the Lord of my life? You know, was he going to really, was he going to be able to call the shots? and create the direction for my life. And so this turning point actually happened, uh, it was a three-day sequence. On May 24th, I graduated from high school. I kind of limped kind of limped through my last year. I wasn't, uh, it's, I was the youngest of five. Not only was I the least coordinated of the five, but also the worst student of the five. I, I was always interested in people, not so much interested in academics. And so I kind of graduated, and it wasn't really a big deal. And I didn't think a lot about it. I mean, we had fun. But here's the cool part that I want to tell you in terms of following. All my life, up until I was 18 years old, I followed my sister. My, I have a sister who's a year older than me, and she was a fantastic leader. I mean, and I would love for you to meet her. Someday I should have her come speak. She just she's an incredible human being. And she was... Uh, vice president of our high school student body when I was a junior and she was a senior. And as she was coming to her graduation, she decided, she turned to me and she says, we need to throw a party for all the graduating seniors. Because this was before they had all-night all parties in, you know, in the gymnasium for people. And she's like, we need to throw this party. And I'm like, who do you mean? What do you mean by we? You know, because I, I was not interested. Was she... She talked mom and dad into it. My dad was very open-handed at one of the really high points of his character. He was incredibly generous. So, And it wasn't a huge class, but there was 350 graduating seniors, maybe 375 in her class. And so mom and Nancy and I, we went out and we bought 1,500 glass bottles of Coke, Sprite, Fanta Orange, uh, you know, and grape, and uh, new grape. And, and we had all this food. And it was an all-night party in our backyard. We got, a, we got a jukebox, and it really turned out great. And when it was over, it took us the whole next day to clean it up. And so she went, she went off to University of Tennessee. Oh, yeah, okay, we got a few. A handful, that was, that was okay. Not quite roll tide, but all right. And uh, so she came back the week before my graduation. She finished. She came back, and she goes, so where are we with the party? I'm like, what party? He says, well, you're throwing a party for all 350 graduating seniors. Well, she was the vice president. You know, I was nothing. I was just, you know, in the background. I was, you know. So anyway, we did the same party, and it was really incredible. And if you're old enough in the jukebox, it'd be fun if we had time for you to guess what what was the song that we played most that night. Because we could probably guess the whole night. This is 1974, my graduation, high school graduation. And we could probably guess all night. Nobody would guess what the what the top favorite song was. Yeah, nineteen seventy four, Frankenstein by Edgar Winter and his White Trash Band. 
And we played that over and over again. And remember, um, we 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 had a lot we had a lot of you know Stax music from Memphis that was big. We were a fully integrated high school, and and literally everybody came. And there was no drinking, although there were some people would go off and disappear for a few hours, and you know come back later. But it was an amazing moment where I thought something beautiful. I did. I did because I followed my sister. And it was interesting. When I look back in my life with her, she's hardly ever led me astray. Like if she has an idea, we, we live 750 miles away from each other. But if she and her husband have an idea or something, I have learned that following them has really paid off in my life. But that's not really the story. But it was kind of, I think, set me up for what was going to happen the next two days. So the next two days my, was my birthday, 18th birthday, May 25th. And I spent the whole day just cleaning up our in our house. I mean, you talk about trash. I mean, it was just incredibly trashed. And then the next day, I got on a plane where I'd agreed to go to Fresno, California to work in a church out there with young people and to spend my summer as an on-call firefighter for the U.S. US government Forest Service. And so that, that was May 26th. And uh, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you the rest of it, but on May 27th at 10 p.m. that night, I found myself in an open helicopter flying up into the Sierra Nevadas by my first week of forest fires. It was just an incredible sequence of events. But here's the part that I want you to think about, because there's a certain point where I want you to think about when Jesus called you to say, are you going to follow me? That could even be this week for some of you, like you believe or you're sympathetic to Jesus. You want your kids to have a faith foundation. But have you ever had that visceral moment where you go, Jesus is going to be Lord of everything in my life. This is, the, this is one of the turning points that every disciple of Jesus faces. And sometimes you face it when your life crumbles apart. Your life crumbles apart. You go, am I still going to follow Jesus as Lord in this situation? So this is, this is so funny. Uh, being the youngest kid, it's like you're an afterthought. But I remember asking mom and dad. We were, I was invited by a, a distant family friend to say, hey, we've got a job you know, uh, fighting forest fires. And I, I turned to my mom and dad. I'm like, hey, what do you guys think? Should I, should I go out there and fight forest fires for the summer? Like, they're like, sure, great. Hey, we're going out. We're, come on, we're going out for hamburgers. I mean, like they never asked one question. It's like you're the fifth kid. You're totally expendable. Sure. You get burned up in a fire in the Sierra Nevadas or, you know, somewhere in the we, – we fought a bunch of fires in Phoenix in 120-degree weather outside of Phoenix. And they never asked one question. Like, how bad are they? I hope when they got to heaven, Jesus scolded them for that. And so my family loved me so much that uh, they dropped me off at the airport, a couple of them, and I was gone for the summer. But here's what happened, and this is my turning point. I got on the plane, and I'd already been on a lot of adventures with God because of the kind of the intrepid, risk-taking nature of my mom and dad. And I got on the plane, and I thought, I'm leaving home. And uh, my schedule was I was going to be home for four days, and then I was going to go to Wheaton in mid-August, late August, to, to play football for the powerhouse of the Midwest, Wheaton College. Um, and I got on the plane, and all of a sudden, I just had this crushing loneliness that almost everybody in, this, everybody in this room has had a moment where you left your family, you left people you loved, and all of a sudden, it's, it's just this crushing loneliness where you want to weep, and you feel like someone is like ex- excavated part of your insides, you know, and I started to cry. I, fortunately, I was 
next to the window, and it's a really nice lady sitting in the middle seat. But I turned my back, and uh, I didn't know what to do. But my mom and dad had encouraged me when I was five years old, when I was learning five or six, learning to read. They said, Steve, if you read the Bible every day, you'll never be sorry. God has promised my word will not return empty to you, but it will accomplish the purposes for which I was set forth. And I remember you know, learning that as a kid. And so for the rest of my life, I would re- read through the Bible. My first time, which, which by the way, you get extra credit in heaven, the first reading through the Bible was the Schofield Bible in Old English. I have tried to read it in recent years. <laughs> it's completely unintelligible to me. I don't know if anybody's found that. If you read the NIV or the New American Standard or the Message Version, but I grew up on the Schofield Bible, Old English, and man, I marked my Bible. And I finished reading through the Bible the first time when I was 12 years old. Man, I waded through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. I mean, I think that was pretty unusual. So I didn't know what to do, but I had my Bible, and the night before, as I was reading through the Bible, I was in. I finished my reading that night before I had gone to bed at Matthew nineteen fifteen, and so I'm in the. I like. I don't know what to do. I'm weeping. I'm like, gosh, I'm going home. I'm going to be home for four days, and I'm going to be at Wheaton College for four years, and I, I don't know what what is what's happening with my life. And I didn't, by the way, I didn't know one single human being at Wheaton College. I was going to college seven five hundred and seventy miles away from Memphis. I didn't know one human being where I was going, and so I didn't. And I didn't know one person in California. It was just like, what have I done? And so I opened my Bible to Matthew 19. And this is the story that I began to read. Let's look at it together. Just then, oh man. Okay, this is going to be hard to do. This, isn't it interesting how you think back on your life and everything is so visceral? You, go, you, you can remember, like remember the moment when... Uh, when you had a child that was born that had special needs or or you got terrible news or something, it's, it, when you tell a story publicly like it, just, it just comes right back to you. Just then a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus was, it was great. This is, the, this is the word for teacher, didaskalos, teacher. This is one who teaches the things of God. Or in, the Bible, in, in the New Testament, it was teaching, showing the way to salvation. And Jesus, I just, you know, I, I, when I grew up, no one ever taught Jesus like, I never heard Jesus, I never heard Bible teachers or pastors growing up ever have fun with Jesus or have fun with the Bible. I mean, Jesus is jerking this guy around. Why do you, why do you ask me about what is good? Can you just see Jesus asking, he's kind of got a half, a half grin on his face? Why are you asking me about what's good? And the guy's like, oh, I'm in trouble I had this question, now I know I'm in trouble. I'm in deep weeds. Jesus says, there's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And I was looking this up. I'd always wondered about this, but <laughs> you say, what is he, when he, when he means no one, what, what does he mean? Look, look, look at the, the Greek word here, the udes. You know, this is used throughout the, the, the Greek New Testament, but it, here's how it's used. No man, nothing, not any man, like Ain't no, they should have had in the blue letter Bible. Ain't nobody, <laughs> ain't nobody good. This is just not. This is just not true. And Spurgeon, who by the way, if you ever read Spurgeon, still stands the test of time. My mom and I, a couple w- weeks weeks ago, were reading a book recently republished of Spurgeon's sermons on the supremacy of Christ. And my mom wanted me to read one of the sermons every morning with her. And uh, 
to drive me crazy. Oh, you got to read this. You got to read this. That was our whole life. But listen, look at what Spurgeon says. The argument is clear. Either Jesus was good or this young this man ought not to have called him good. But as there is none good but God, Jesus who is good must be what? It's obviously that Jesus is playing a game with him. And Jesus then says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. This is the other word because we don't necessarily know in, in, our, in our modern vernacular, what does it mean to keep something? And, and, and it's so clear. It's to guard it. Like you guard, it's not like just, oh, I'm doing the commandments. It's like, no, you're, you're ferocious for what's true. You want to guard. You, you want to attend to something carefully. This is why the, in Jewish culture, they would write the commandments and put them in little phylacteries and then tie them to their heads, right? Because they're like, this is life. And then the young man, which again, I'm still wondering all my life. In, in fact, this is one of the first people I want to talk to in heaven is this guy, because I believe he's going to be there. He didn't come this day, but I really believe, I, I just, there's no way he didn't eventually come. But he said to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus said, don't murder, don't commit adultery. Where is this? Don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And I just, boy, I love this. I love this idea of neighbor. Plesion is the word for neighbor. And according to Christ, there are a bunch of definitions, by the way, but really, according to Jesus Christ, it's any other person. Are you guys with me? Any other person. That's your neighbor. Irrespective of nation or religion with whom we live or with whom we chance to meet. I learned this as a kid in Africa, but I, we're trying to learn it now. Your Muslim neighbor who lives in your city is your neighbor first. Proton. That's not a Muslim person you're talking to. That's your neighbor you meet them. That's the whole point of the Good Samaritan story. Whoever this person is, and, and we've had, Paul and I've had the really a wonderful privilege, and we've lived in a neighborhood for the last 27 years with Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims and um, uh, many, uh, many B Buddhists and then a multinational place. And everyone was a neighbor. In fact, it's so cool. We got back from taking care of my mom about two weeks ago. We were in Memphis. And we got back to Detroit. We were there for a few days before coming here. And we hadn't been, I hadn't even emptied the car out. And my neighbor, Ki Young Pio, comes over. He's from Seoul, Korea. He's an engineer for Chrysler. He, in fact, he's, if you like uh, Chrysler Jeep, he's in charge of all the electronics on the dashboard. Brilliant guy. And he's about 20 years younger than me, and he loves me. He thinks I hung the moon, which, of course, I'm open to that. I'm open to receiving that. But it's like five minutes. Like, Keon, don't you? In American culture, you give people a few minutes to be settled, right? Well, we end up sitting on my front porch for an hour. And I remember as a kid, we, I grew up in a church where we got to go. We got to be the, we got to go to the world to take the word Jesus Christ to the world. I'm sitting there. And we're there for about five minutes, and his son, Benedict, who was born in America, just the cutest guy, he's a second boy. He comes up and starts talking to his dad. But then our new neighbor that lives kitty corner from us in our, in our court uh, is a Hindu family that just moved in from uh, Calcutta area. And his son is there. And then two doors down to our left, 
the Filipino family, both mother and father were doctors, uh, but they, they couldn't qualify in America when they came, but they're both, they're both practicing nurses. Their grandson comes over. So I'm five minutes into being home. I'm sitting with Ki Young and three kids from three completely different parts of the world that when I grew up, I'd never met anybody from those parts of the world. And I thought, isn't it cool? Jesus told us to go to the whole world. And he said, you know what? On second thought, you guys really aren't doing that great of a job. Thank you, HCJB, Reach Beyond, and some other people. But, but so, you know what? Just to make this simpler, we're going to bring the whole world to you. And that's where all of us are today. So the whole world is our neighbor. Are you with me on this? There is no room to hate anyone. There's no room to treat any person that thinks of a different, who has a different lifestyle or has made choices you disagree with. They're still your neighbor. Your job is to love them as Jesus Christ has loved you, okay? And so this is really interesting. So I'm just off on a rabbit trail about following before I get back to my story. But I thought in this last year, what we've lost within our culture, in Western culture, is that people are our neighbors. People on social media are our neighbors. People in our church who disagree with us. People have different political opinions. These are our neighbors. And I'm not going to have time to teach you, but if I had a seventh session, which you're, luckily, luckily for you, there are only six, I would, I would teach the end of Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't be angry with your brother or sister. Don't call anyone foolish. Reconcile with whoever you have a broken relationship with. Do everything in your power. Don't even go to church and sing a song until you've done everything in your power to be reconciled to a person you're broken relationship with. Just don't resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek and love your enemy. And I was thinking, man, in the church, it's like we've forgotten this. You know what I've seen in my own church this year? I felt like followers of Jesus in my own church are rewriting the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how it's been rewritten this, this last year and a half. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about our church and so often how I've responded to people. Here's how we're, we've rewritten the Sermon on the Mount. Be angry at everyone who disagrees with you and ridicule them where possible, especially if you can do it publicly. Discount everything someone stands for unless they agree with you 100%. Now, am I, am I preaching or meddling with you now? I, I don't know if I am or not, but I, this, is, this is a big deal to me. Call people out publicly if you think they're stupid. Burn relationship, burn relational bridges with people. You don't need them. If someone hits you on the cheek, punch them in the mouth as hard as you can. In fact, my dad told me that once when I came home. In sixth grade, when Bruce Barber had whipped my butt on the way home from school with five of his friends, and I was too chicken to go back and do it. Maybe it wasn't the greatest advice, but Jesus is not saying that for us. Finally, grind your enemies into the dust and kill them if you can and rejoice in their destruction. I mean, doesn't that sound a little bit like what we've been tricked into to believing and forgetting what Jesus has said? To say, no, you're my neighbor. Like, if you came up to me after this message and said, that was the most worthless morning I've ever spent in my life. doesn't matter. You're my neighbor. I'm called to love you. I'm called to lay down my life for you, right? And this is the hardest thing to do in the body of Christ. Now I'm going to talk later this morning about it's hardest to do in our families, I think. 
It's even harder than in public. And the young man, let's back, back to this. So that was rabbit trail. Say, thank you, Steve, for a rabbit trail. Okay. All these I've kept, the young man said. I've kept all of these. And, I, and before I really knew, knew something about Greek, I misunderstood what he was saying. He's saying, I've kept all of these. What do I still lack? And I thought what he was saying is I've, I'm perfect. I thought he was saying I've never made a mistake with any of these. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, uh, philoso. He's saying, I've guarded these. I've kept watch over these. I've really taken care not to violate. In other words, I've really tried to honor these. He isn't saying, I've never made a mistake. It's not what he's saying. He's not claiming percent. He's not being braggadocious about this. But here's what I remember being on the plane. I'm crying on the plane. I'm reading Matthew 19, and I give. He says, "I've kept all of these. Like I really want to follow you." And it's it's not in this version, but it's in one of the other gospels. It says, "When Jesus does anybody remember the other version where it says when Jesus looked at him, what happens? Anybody remember this? He loved him. That's just why the the New Testament is so fantastic. We call Judas neighbor and he, he looks at this young man, he says he looked at him, and he loved him. And I just wanted you to know, when he looks at you, he, he loves you, even when you're being naughty. When he looks at your children, and you're wondering, is anybody else going to, I was talking to, I think it was Eric, Eric Fredericks, is that right? Frederick, he was talking about his daughter, and, and we were just sharing, yeah, when our kids were born, we're like, is anybody going to see my kids? That was just a huge burden in my heart. Who's going to see and value my kids? And you just wish the whole world was Gull Lake for 52 weeks a year, people seeing the people you love. And so as I sat on the plane, I love this guy, and it was clear to me that he really tried. He was c- completely sincere in his desire to do this. And I was so confused, and I was like, what is Jesus going to say? And Jesus said, want to be perfect go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven then come and follow me just look at some of this here what does jesus say you should if you haven't taken any notes this this week i want you to think about this in your life in your family what does this mean go sell give come follow jesus is literally saying that first word go is like get out of here like take off don't hang with me. You you go and you do you do what I'm asking you to do. Out of here. Gone. And then you sell. The, the actual word for sell is like to barter or whatever. And then he says give. And here's I highlighted this word. It says get once you've sold everything, give to patokos, to those that are destitute, those are the that are in beggary, that are afflicted, that are powerless, that are helpless. It says go and give all your stuff to them. And again, the reason this was a turning point for me because I'd always read about the rich young ruler, right? And it doesn't even say in Matthew, I don't, can't remember if it says later in the passage that he was young. In one, of the, in one of the accounts, it says that he was young. And I'd always read it as a story. But now I, I, was, I was in the story. It's like you're, you're watching the movie and all of a sudden you find yourself, you're in, you're in the movie and you're living and experiencing it. 
And this is what, what I really heard from Jesus. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I was hearing, hearing from Jesus like, okay, Steve, you want to live with me? You want to go on an adventure with me? Here it is. Let go of what is most important to you and drop it out of your hands. Whatever strengths and resources you have, give them away to others. Don't hold on to anything. In fact, it's interesting. In the 30-year history of Kinsey, we had three, really three core values. and uh, One of them was to experience the love of Christ. Another was to, to uh, love others. And the last one was to live open-handedly. That, that actually came out of this moment. And, and, and certainly from the example of my mother and father. Give away to others in need. Because around you are people who need me. So follow me. And this is where, and follow me no matter where it leads. I honestly, I can't even describe this moment taxing down. The, by this time, we were taxing down the runway. We hadn't even left the ground of Memphis. But it was as clear as anything I'd ever heard from Jesus in my whole life. And uh, I'd already experienced great adventure of following Jesus. My dad took incredible risks. My mom and dad did. But I had all my life enjoyed the riches of a family. I thought, I've never wanted for anything. I'm 18 years old. I've never wanted for anything. I've had absolutely most incredible life. I have four older siblings that thought I was great and loved me. And here, here's the moment. Here's, here's the turning point. As the plane lifted off, God spoke to me so clear, as clearly as I've ever heard him. And this is what I heard. Steve, you're never going home again. This is it. And I'm like, what? Because Jesus knew I was, I was going to follow him imperfectly, but I, I was going to go for it. He's like, you're never going home. And it was like, this plane ride, this plane ride from now on, Steve, it's me and you. And that's the only guarantee. That's it. Man, I, I loved my I loved every moment growing up. And guess what I did? I started to cry harder. <laughs> I'm sure that lady next to me is like, this boy is, needs help. And I started to, to barter with God. Because remember, I got to go sell everything. And the word sell that Jesus said to the to the to this 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 guy that came to him. The sell was also the word for barter. Go like get the best best price you can get for your stuff. And I'm bartering. I'm like, what do you mean I'm never going home? I'm never going to go to Memphis again? I felt like the Lord said, yeah, you're going to go back and visit. You're going to go with a suitcase. You'll go with a suitcase once in a while. But you're never going. Your home now is somewhere else. And this was a long way. This was six or seven years before I was going to marry Paula. And and uh, this home now is wherever she is. If, if if she's here, then I'm home. doesn't matter where we are in the world. That's home was wherever she is and wherever Jesus is. And uh, wow, it's incredible. And I felt like he was saying, I want you to let go of what's most valuable to you. And I think he's asking me today the same thing. He asked me to do that with my kids. You let go. They're not yours. But now it's, you're going to let go of your grandkids. I don't know what it is. You're going to let go of leadership at Kensington. I did that last year. You let go of it. That's not yours. And I think this is a turning point that Jesus, in his love, 
invites us to say, I'm going to give you, I'm going to offer you the gift of following. And now just to clarify, I came home lots over the years. So, (laughs) and uh, it's funny, my mom and dad always came to visit me a lot wherever we were. Although it's like my four siblings couldn't cross the Mason-Dixon line. Not that I'm bitter. And I will tell you something. Uh, I have um, 24 nieces and nephews on my side of the family, and I missed a lot of great sporting events. I have six nephews who were all state in football or baseball or golf in Memphis, and I only saw a couple of them play. So there was a real – some of you are like, well, what's a big – it was a big deal to me. And I love these people. And then but Jesus was like, are you going to follow me? And then Jesus – and by the way, when the young man heard this, I'm, I'm getting off track. When the young man heard this, we're almost done for this session. He went away sad because he had great wealth. And here's, here's the thing that I want you to, to see that really, really shocked me. It says he was sad. The word is sorrowful. Lepeo, it's the exact same word that describes Jesus in the garden. Wow. I just totally wiped me out like are you like this guy was so sad he wanted he wanted to follow jesus but he was so sad because he had been given unlimited resources when i was on that plane i thought i mean i didn't have a penny to my name but i knew i could call my dad at any moment i could call my earthly father at any moment i ended up leading a young life club in at wheaton at glenbard west high school with 12 other wheaton college students and do you know who paid for every penny of the existence of that club for four years? My mom and dad. Thousands of dollars every year. It's like I was their part-time missionary in Chicago. And, my, and I, I would call my dad and say, Dad, we're doing, we're doing a retreat. I need $600 for kids that can't afford to go on a ski trip to Whitecap, Wisconsin. I, you know what? It's been so long. I don't even know how he got the money. I think it took like days where he'd – go do something at his bank and mom would go and then it would somehow get to the bank and I don't even, does anybody even remember that those times? It's crazy. But he went away sad and what hit me was this, this is why I believe this, 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 this young man, there it is, it's young man. When he heard this, he went away sad. I believe he's going to be in heaven because eventually his sorrow was so great. It's sorrow it's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. That's what the Bible teaches. And, I th- and I'm just very hopeful for that because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to the disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, um, and again, I'm going to tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. There we are, sorry. Than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the, I know this message is so relevant in this room. Because you'd be hard-pressed to find a single room anywhere in the world where parents love their kids like you guys love your kids. And I know how you love them because I'm right in there with you. You want the best for your kids. I was talking to Dan and Kelly about Faith is 14, right? And we were talking yesterday, and we're dreaming of the day when Faith will be a counselor here. She's an incredible young woman, and she's going to – I mean, we want that, right? But what do we have to do with Jesus? He's asking all of us to do. Go ahead. Look at me and do it, do it with me. Okay? With everything I have, do this. Just 
Open up your hands and go, what, what belongs to me? Nothing. All you got is Jesus. Only guarantee. By the way, I've shared this with my, my Ann Arbor buddies that are, that are here this week. But I forgot this when we were raising our kids. And like I was bartering with God. Like, God, if Paul and I really follow you and serve you, then our kids are going to turn out great the whole way. And here's the contract. You, and later I found that Jesus hadn't signed the contract. Because the contract that he made was, was go, sell, give, come, follow. That's the only contract. That's the only contract you get is the disciple of Jesus. There's no guarantee that your kids are going to love Jesus. No guarantee that things are going to work out in your family. Jesus is not interested in giving those guarantees. He's very interested in your family. But what he wants most is what? Your full heart. And I'll be honest with you, it really stinks sometimes, doesn't it? He says, you keep giving them, you keep handing over everything you are to me. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And I wrote this down today. I thought somebody might want to write this down. But I really believe this with all my heart. Jesus invites us to follow into what is impossible to us. Like there's no way you think it's impossible, but Jesus then will do something absolutely amazing. And what I didn't know, and I'm playing all those years ago, that the joy of following Jesus always outweighs every other cost. He is, what Proverbs says, the friend that's closer than a brother. And, and the most faithful of friends. And there's just one last thing, which is great, because this is why Peter is probably my favorite. You know, my, my Catholic friends love Peter because he's, he's the rock for the church and all this stuff. I love Peter because he's an idiot, but he's so honest. He's just wonderful. I love him. And he goes, Peter, Peter goes, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What is it in it for? What then will there be for us? I mean, he, everybody's thinking it. Like, what's the payoff? And Jesus said, I truly, I tell you, the renewal of all things. When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will sit on 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers, this is my, now this is my life verse, because this is why it was a turning point. This is my life verse, Matthew 19, 21, 19, 29. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. There's two huge promises in this. One is a gigantic return on investment, a promise to every believer that if you follow him, he will take whatever you've given and he will multiply it at least 100 times. Isn't that cool? I, I urge you to claim that as a family. Say, Lord, we're following you, and show us what that 100 times is. You know what I learned for me? It wasn't 100 times financially. It wasn't 100 times in mental health or you know physical health. It wasn't 100 times perfect marriage, because we, we can share another time how many struggles 
we had in our marriage, how, how t long it took for me to get her to her place of perfection. So on, it's so wrong that even say that because I was, first 13 years, I was not a good husband in so many ways. But the payoff is people. So of all those years ago, if the only payoff would have been to be here with you this week and to see the way you love your families, the way you want Christ to work in your families, I feel like it would have been worth my whole life. It would. I just would say to you, 100 times, the promise of 100 times is just way too small. It's like infinitely too small. You follow him, you, you, you give up everything that is most precious. You make sure that Jesus is exalted in, in love and devotion far above your devotion to your wife, although I think when you express devotion to your spouse, there's a tremendous, it's a tremendous act of loving Jesus. When you love your kids, it's an act of loving Jesus. But to make sure that Jesus himself is above all, go, sell, give, come, follow. This is the gift that Jesus offers us. And I told you the very next day, I'm in the Sierra Nevadas, inhaling a burning forest fire smoke with, with probably 500 complete strangers. You know, it was an incredible experience. I'm like, what the heck have I done? That's how it started. But as I think back, God has promised this to you, and I just want to say to you that following Jesus is the greatest investment in the history of the world. Let me finish with this, and then, we'll, and then uh, take a break, and some of you might have to be released and go run from me, but because I'm teaching again right after this. So that was 1974. Fast forward to uh, 2002. No, no, that's not right. 2006. You, you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. No, you never know. So random. So fast forward to 2006. So that's 32 years later. Um, our daughter, our oldest daughter, she's actually the one of our kids that really never rebelled. The other, and she wasn't perfect, but she 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 had her eyes on Jesus from a young age, and she was at Wheaton, and she was gonna go as a missionary. Um, to um, Wagadugu, which most of you have been there. I mean, how many of you have even ever even heard of Wagadugu? Anybody? Okay, of course. No, you guys don't count. Put your hands down, Dave. Uh, she goes, "Yeah, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna go uh, to Wagadougou, and I'm gonna do six months. Um, and I, uh, there's a French Christian ministry, and I'm gonna start a preschool for children whose parents have died from AIDS. And I'm gonna start a preschool out in the, in the middle of somewhere outside of Wagadougou. We never, we didn't know Burkina Faso. It was." Upper Volta was what it used to be. You you'll rec you recognize that name probably from geography, but we started reading up on it, and we, and we found out, again, this is post-9-11, that it's 99-plus per percent Muslim country. Um, and we're good. I'm, I'm, we, I mean, I, I don't know. Paul and I were kind of like my mom and dad, like, okay, cool. Forest fires, wagadugu, whatever. If you're following Jesus... Like, we always told our kids, if you're going to be killed, do, be killed doing something noble. Don't be killed doing something stupid. The great mantra for parenting. 
and uh, <laughs> which they didn't follow, but <laughs> thank God they're all here, but for now. And so about two weeks before she was going to go to Ouagadougou, uh, I said to her, so I'm like, so, so who's, picking, who's picking you up at the airport when you get to Ouagadougou? She says, I don't know. They said, somebody will be there to pick me up. And I'm like, what? You're flying into this post-9-11 world into a Muslim country in northern Africa, and you and they didn't even tell you the name of the person. You, you know, if any of you like, I've flown to Egypt. I, I uh, that's another story. But I've flown into places where somebody and in the Muslim countries where the person that's picking you up's got your name on a piece of paper. It's like, okay, you're going to trust your life. You have no idea who this person is. They've got your name on a piece of paper. And uh, and it's it's okay for me, but it, was, it wasn't okay for her. And she just she just started. Like looking at me like I'd lost my mind. And she did something. I'll never forget this. I, gosh, I love her for this. She goes, and I'm just ranting and raving. Were you in the, were you there when I was doing this? Yeah. So sometimes it, it was, I just remember me and Lenny, and she goes, Dad, she held my finger until I stopped. I, you know, you put your finger, it's like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah. She goes, I got this. And she just turned and walked, walked into another room. Dad, 21 years old, I got this. She had an incredible experience in her life. But the story, and the story worked out beautifully. She's an amazing person. And, uh, but we went to Metro Air, Airport to drop her off. And she was of our one kid. She hated anything that was a scene. And uh, we, we, we went with her. Oh, God. And uh, she went through security, and we're standing there, and we're both just bawling because we don't we don't know who's picking her up, you know. And we're like, okay, Lord, this is just like just like the 1974 plane ride to Fresno. I mean, it's just the same thing, but this time it's our daughter, and uh, she got she got away from us so fast because we were crying. She's like, boy, she was gone like just like that. And she went through security. And a lot of you know Metro Airport, Detroit. You've, a lot of you flown in there if you're in, in the, the main McNamara building. And she went through, and you go about 30, 30, 40 feet, and then you take an escalator down. And right as she got to the escalator, she turned back. She's like, she wasn't crying. She's like, she looked at us, and we are like, ah! Ah! <laughs> and you got security, you can hug. And then she disappeared down the escalator. Just saw her disappear. The reason I've shared these turning points all this week is because these turning points never go away. You're always asking the question, am I going to receive the gift of following Jesus? And of course, for us in this room, the answer is going to be what? Yes. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible gift that you offer to every one of us. And I'm thinking of, Everybody in this room is, has crossroads issues about, are they going to let go? Are they going to trust you? Are they going to follow? And Lord, the world, a hurting world, is, is waiting on us to answer yes. And, uh, and so today, as a community for this week, community of faith and love and hope, we say yes together in Jesus. Okay. All right, why don't you take some time? We'll start back in maybe seven or eight minutes. And if you need to think about this, you're welcome to... Go skip out. I'm taught my fifth turning point 
is the turning point I came to with my adult children. That's what I'm going to talk about next, which is a really big deal for us. So thanks, everybody.